everybody, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Top Rank Podcast. I'm your host, Rami Rank. So you might know today's guest from his appearances on the Dr. Phil Show. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Best Self, Be You, Only Better. And now he's the host of the Coach Mike Podcast, which can be found on all podcast platforms. Coach Mike Bayer. Mike, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Rami. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I want to start somewhere where I don't think any of your interviews have started, and that's with a confession. I cannot get into Magic the Gathering, and I have tried <laughs> playing it. I, I, you know, I've tried a little bit in person. You know, I've tried it online. And look, I'm a self-professed geek. I just can't get into it, but I know that you love it. Uh, how did you get into this? How long have you been playing this game? <clears throat> well, uh, yeah, so I, I love actually uh, a lot of different like role-playing games or video games, card games. Um, it seems like the times have changed a lot. I remember growing up maybe you know, you'd get together with friends more often and play games. Now so much of it is virtual. So, um, but, uh, during high school, I, I grew up, uh, in athletics, but there was something about the whole world of like Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering, and like kind of these games that were, um, you could just, every time you played, it was like a different circumstance. And I just, I've always loved fantasy love Terry Brooks novels. Uh, he wrote a book called Swords of Shannara that I love. And so I just have always been the fantasy. I know it's kind of like a, a, an odd uh, hobby, but I even still, when it's not the pandemic, I'll even still do tournaments. <laughs> hey, honestly, it's not that odd. I mean, look, people love it. I mean, you know, there's millions and millions of players out there, but I just found it so fun because it's like, th there's almost this correlation between, you know, magic and what you do right now. And that you're always trying to like build your deck and collect your cards and, you know, strengthen yourself. And so it, it's almost like a fantasy version of, you know, self-improvement, if you will. Yeah. And you know, the book, the book that you mentioned, best self in best self, you create, uh, a fantasy character of yourself. You create, because our parents give us names, but really at our core, at our spirit, um, I kind of, you're right, I kind of utilize that as inspiration and my best self's a wizard. I have a tattooed on my arm. I have wizards all around my house. Uh, you kind of create this um, version of yourself that's truly who you are. And so, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I how we perceive life is our reality. And um, I think the more that we believe that we can harness our gifts or that we're talented or that we can create more or that we uh, can cast a spell, so to speak, uh, it, it is kind of a bit like coaching. I mean, it's, it's probably why I, I work, spent many years working with a lot of entertainers. And I think it's because I'm really passionate about creatively helping people uh, it probably allowed me to do really good work with them, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. But like, here's my question though. So when you yeah. were, you know, young, when you were a kid, did you have any sense that this is where your life was going to lead you? Cause it seems like you were almost being groomed for, you know, very much the life of an athlete and like, you know, a sports player. Yeah. I, I had no intention plan idea that I would ever be helping people for a living. If you ask, and usually kids don't, I mean, when you ask, I've done this when I've given talks before. I've said, um, you know, everyone who's here, raise your hand if you're doing the exact job you thought you were going to be doing as a kid. <laughs> and you'll get one or two out of hundreds. And usually they, they're just the ones that always like to act, you know. But yeah. very rarely um, do we end up. So I had no idea. And in fact, 
uh, I thought I was going to be working in clubs and parties and promote, you know, doing bars. Uh, I thought that was really cool. I knew I, mean, I wasn't going to make it pro in athletics. So <laughs> I, did you ever try getting into like, you know, like working in like the bars and the clubs and the promoter? I and did. Everything? Yeah. Cool. So I worked in nightclubs in Manhattan and through some parties. And, uh, but by that time, you know, the, the part of my story is, you know, I was also addicted to drugs. So right. uh, that kind of goes hand in hand with nightlife yeah. um, and going out. And um, I got sober at 22 and that's kind of what, you know, created a whole new optic lifestyle of, you know, what I wanted to do when I grew up. So how old were you when you first got into drugs? Hmm. I would probably say like 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. Were you just experimenting with weed and stuff at that point? And yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I, you know, back then there really wasn't internet. I think there was like AOL but I remember hearing through kids in the neighborhood that there was a weed, like an herb that you could smoke to get high. I was so naive, and this is true, that I went through my mom's um, cabinet of spices and herbs, and I tried uh-huh. smoking every one of them. <laughs> so, I, I mean, were you just desperate to get high at that point? Like, yeah, I, I was miserable. I don't like. I mean, my I come from a family where like. I don't know. Spiritual, emotional health is not, uh, you know, it wasn't the top of the list. I was on the core values and like I, all the, I mean, I'm the youngest of three, but we all, and my dad was a successful guy. And we, I mean, from the outside, it looked great. It's just emotionally, um, I was very unhappy and wanted to get out of reality. Were you You aware of how unhappy you were at that point? Or were you just looking for something new? No, I had no idea. Like, I don't even think we're that. I mean, insight develops as we get older, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we're just forming throughout our teenage years, I think we go towards what feels good or what feels fun or exciting or new. So it was more like, um, this sounds like a lot of fun. Got you it. Know? Got it. And then now you also have talked about, and you alluded to that it was when your grandfather died that that was kind of around the moment that you decided that you needed to get sober and really tr- truly pursue it. And, you know, you've talked that, uh, you know, your, your home family life may not have been the best, but were you closer with your grandfather and that's why it had such an effect on you? Yeah. Wow. I don't even know where you pulled that from, but that is true. Um, I think it was more, um, yeah, I had this, it was kind of interesting. You know what, for anything that we do in life, we, uh, it can become progressive or it can be like balanced. And for me, uh, I progressed to using crystal meth. And then all of a sudden there was opportunities in which I would be fronted crystal meth to transport to Manhattan. And, and it didn't feel right with my values, but like, I was like, I don't know, this is like, falling in my lap and people want me to do. And I remember I was kind of like debating if I should sell drugs, which by the way, I was a terrible drug dealer. I did that because I gave it away, but like, I'm not, I'm not (laughs) that guy. Like even when I was on drugs, like I was never mean or like did think like, I know for some people it turns them into like, they don't care. You know, it's almost going criminal for me. It was more like, let's have fun. Um, 
and so yeah like i my my grandpa had passed away and then i kind of had these weird experiences uh when i got back to new york where i thought my grandfather was talking to me and uh, what were you experiencing i mean were these just like visions or hallucinations or dreams i mean yeah i mean the thing so every drug that you use in excess hits you differently so whereas like opiates if you do a lot of opiates it makes you extremely groggy tired sleepy out of it um with crystal meth it i was one of those that would stay up for five days or seven days at a time straight um and so like you know i'd eat rice cakes with peanut butter that was kind of like my what i would eat for lunch maybe a burrito and that was it and and i would stay up for five to six days or seven days and you eventually when you stay up for a long period of time you lose a sense of reality and so i I mean, it sounds so crazy that this is like where things went, but like I spray painted my apartment in New York red. I thought that like, why? I was like, it's gotta be red. And, and I was like, thought that like, I mean, I thought I was like getting possessed or something. Oh it was God. very weird. Yeah. It's super weird. Like when you do that drug and people, it's a really dark energy. It's a very dark, dark like paranoid fear-based reality like i thought there was a camera in the people to my door i truly believed it it wasn't like um and i just had these experiences where eventually i met some random guy who told me that there was a big uh fat man and my grandpa was really large he was really overweight and this guy who I had met one time told me there was a big fat man in the sky who was really upset at me for the life I was living right now. And then he said a few other things where I was just like, whether it was real or not real, like all of a sudden I was like, this, it just clicked with you. This, yeah. It just clicked. Like, like, and then I threw away all the drugs I had and then I started reaching out for help. Uh, yeah. I mean, I kind of figure you almost have to at that point. I mean, living with that, you know, much, you know, stress and paranoia, it's, it's gotta be almost impossible. Yeah. But a lot of people don't get out of it because the thing about drugs is um, they make you think, you know, more than, you know. And so, you know, I, I spent many years doing interventions and traveling the country, intervening on people. And there were certain types of people and behaviors that are the most difficult, hands down, with getting someone to agree to go to treatment. And one of those is someone who's on crack or crystal meth because it, the person doesn't, unless they're crashing, they don't, they don't feel bad. Like, right. they can't see the destruction they're making. Um, so it's, it's actually pretty, I mean, I'm grateful I used meth instead of alcohol or other drugs because at least it got me sober at 22 years old. But there's a lot, there's a lot of people, unfortunately, that like can't get out of it. And, um, and then I ended up starting a rehab 14 years ago. So I've owned a treatment center uh, called Cast Centers and kind of flipped that into a inspiration. Well, I was going to say, because your story in general, is, it's just a lot happier than, you know, others have out there. I mean, look, you know, me and my family, we, we've lost multiple friends and, you know, coworkers to addiction. Mm -hmm. But was it the fact that, you know, you really kind of got to that bottom point that, you know, led you to eventually become, you know, an alcohol and drug abuse counselor? Yeah, I would never have been an alcohol or drug. I would never be helping people for a living if I didn't get sober. Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine being in a career like i can't i mean it's got to be so difficult for these guys who are doctors who are 
alcoholics or drug addicts and helping people day in day out because there's a there's a real imposter syndrome that ha- that has to happen right so yeah. like we you know you can't transmit something you don't have we say mm-hmm. and it's not that someone has to be in recovery in fact like so many great clini- clinicians out there that were never alcoholics or addicts it's just for me that kind of create my created my new story where I became a counselor and went to school for it. And um, like I've, I've always done it every few years is I just keep evolving my craft. Yeah. Know? I mean, that that's what it feels like. And it also feels like, you know, every, every step of your evolving has kind of been very natural. So, cause you went from being a drug and alcohol abuse counselor to then becoming an interventionist. But how long were you a counselor before you became the interventionist? So when you, when you're a counselor, I, I got, I, I, was in Minnesota when I went to school. So Minnesota, every state is different. Mm-hmm. Um, Minnesota is like old school where you have to do 880 hours of intern hours. California is a joke for <laughs> becoming a counselor. Like it's, it's just my opinion, like only because like there's ways around the system, right? Whereas right. in Minnesota, it's a license. And so it's very like, you have to do this many group hours, this many assessments, this many family sessions. And so the thing for me is I became a alcohol and drug abuse counselor, and then I was going to get my master's in social work. I thought I wanted to, you know, have a, a, a clinic, and I needed a master's in social work to do that. And I studied. I got the Princeton Review. I had scholarships. I was working in coffee shops. I had no money. Um, and the day I was, and I, I submit, I was going to submit to all these schools. And the day of uh, to take that GRE, my car wouldn't start my mercury sable and i took it as a sign from spirit life that i wasn't meant to do that and then literally the next day uh i got offered a job to open up a uh part of a, a big intervention company they wanted to open up a southern california office and so i cool. i essentially was a counselor for like a few years uh-huh. and then i became an interventionist Got it. Uh, by the way, as a former owner of a Mercury Sable, I will tell you that it, it was a horrible car. It was a horrible, <laughs> horrible car. <laughs> Similar to you, it was, I, I was at one point in my life where you know I was you know running out of money. I was working in entertainment. There, there just wasn't much jobs to be had. And I got into that car one morning. I turned it on, and I just felt the whole thing just go boom and just start shaking. And one of the engine cylinders had just cracked. And that that was kind of the end of that car. But the good news was is that it was while I was at the shop getting it repaired that I got, you know, uh, the call to actually join the union and start working on like larger shows and everything. So for me, it was a bit of a life, a turning life point as well. Um, it was a Phoenix, right? It was, a, it was a sable rising from the ashes. Uh, totally. Totally. <laughs> the seats are really comfortable in the car. Look, the, car really- the car looked great. And my parents had a Ford Taurus and I was like, Oh, it's a nicer version of a Taurus. Yeah, this will be great. That's what I thought too. Yeah, and it, but it's like you know, I bought it. I had no money. I had just moved to California. I, I like I went to a repo lot in Santa Ana and you know paid cash for the thing, and I drove it off the lot. And within about three miles of leaving the lot, the check engine light went on. To which I called them, and they're like, "Well, you drove it off already, and there's no lemon lobby." And I was like, "You got to be kidding me, seriously, guys!" Like you know, clearly you just switched the computer, but you know, had that for a couple of years before you know. <laughs> Kerplunk, and uh, you know, eventually wow. was able to improve from there. But I, I actually, I, I love the story that you tell in your book about 
your first intervention, which, you know, apparently went so poorly, the family asked for their money back. And it's like, like, it just, it very much reminded me of, you know, my, my first job interview. And so when I got out here, you know, my dream, I was going to work in, you know, entertainment and film. And I got a call to go in and interview at a uh, universal studios and I, for uh, it was a low budget indie feature. And I was told two things. I was told be there at 10 o'clock in the morning and bring your resume. And I was living in Burbank at the time, which, you know, for anyone listening is literally like next door to universal. And yeah. so I left an hour and a half before the interview and forgot my resume. So I just showed up, you know, an hour and a quarter before the resume was before the interview was supposed to start without what they told me to bring. It's just one of those things where, you know, when you're first starting out, you just get so like amped up and excited that, you know, th things go blank. And I just love that story and wanted to share that. But it, so here's my question though. How did the second intervention go? <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. I think, you know, I'm, you know, it's funny. Like I'll get people that will look at, you know, like whether it's getting a New York Times or being on Dr. Phil, like I'm the first regular in 19 years, mm -hmm. right? It's like he's, and he's been an incredible, it's not, I didn't expect it, right? Like I wasn't thinking I would be on television ever. Um, and the thing is, it's like, anything we do it it's almost like like we have to go through it so many times before we feel confident or we feel good so i think for with interventions because they're life or death i'd say it takes about 20 before i start going okay i know what to do when they're threatening to kill someone i know what to do when they're jumping out a window i know what to do when the mom keeps interrupting when I'm getting the daughter to a place where she wants to get help. I know what to do when dad needs to literally not be a part of this because there's so much resentment towards him. Like you learn, right? Because right. you get some more streets. So, so I always say like, you know, half, half of, and we look for this when we hire at, at cast centers, we want someone who has street and cred and academic. We've hired people who just had academic, let's say they, they trained people, they talked about interventions, they taught about uh, interventions, terrible employees. Yeah. Cause it's all theorized. Right. So like, right. it's something about, you know, it, it took several and even the first one, it was a huge Hollywood family. I was like, Oh my God, you know, I'm putting on my dad's suit. I'm so excited. I'm living with my mom in orange County. She's like, trying to like be like honey don't forget this i'm like shut up mom i gotta go you know i'm driving up there and this company you had to recite this formula and you couldn't just shoot from the hip oh god and they just all stared at me it was really embarrassing it was like one of these families were like there was there a lot of success and they were just kind of like who's this kid you know it's 24 25 does that really work so, where you're reading off a script because it feels like you know every family and every person is different and you you kind of yeah you know, so that company, it's, it's, it's challenging when you run a business of helping people because there has to be a framework. So there's different types of interventions too. Like if you want someone to change, there's like Johnson model of intervention or invitational model. Of like, But basically with this company, it was like, you know, here are the statistics on someone who's struggling with addiction. Here are the odds of them going to treatment. Uh, we're raising their bottom. You know, there was like key phrases, but I like, it was like me trying to recite a script right? and I just was not working. And, <laughs> and, and, and I feel like that's kind of been like even public speaking. I, I feel like so much of what we don't do in life, 
me included, I'm learning this, I'm 40, still learn this. So much of we don't do, we believe we're not good at when the reality is we just haven't done it enough. Like you can get better at anything. And so often I've worked with people through the years, whether it's career and they want a better career or it's like doing something new. And I think it's like no one is great their first time. Like That's true. It's very true. Look and, at the rookies in the NBA. No one, no one is incredible their first game as a rookie. No one like it all takes so much time. So well, I've yeah. learned that and I still have to remind myself, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you go into, you know, a new situation, I mean, you're basically being thrown into the deep end of a swimming pool with very little water in it. And, you know, you better figure out how to land on your feet. And- oh, try being on do- stage with Dr. Phil working with someone and you're just thrown on and you're just like, <laughs> it's like, okay, like, I'm here. Let's this for me? <laughs> yeah, what the heck do I do? You know? So let me ask you, you know, when you started Cast Centers, you know, in 2006, you know, this is kind of like, because uh, uh, I, I look at your life story and I feel like this is like your first real move from, you know, any type of situation where there was some sort of dependency to you being completely independent, you know, whether it was chemical dependency or working for other companies, but you're just striking out on your own. And does that, is that terrifying at that point to you? Or is it just, you, you've done this, you know this, and you're ready to handle this? Yeah. No, well, I- my dad, it was definitely, I borrowed, I think, $10,000 to start the company and I had to pay him back within a year. Mm-hmm. And he was like, why are you giving up this job? Like, I started making six figures back then, like, for this mm-hmm. company. And um, I just, I, I wanted, like, I always, I've always, yeah, I think I was just like, let's do it. Let's try. What's the worst thing that happens? It doesn't work. Right. I moved back in with mom for like a year. Like. But I, I feel like I'm, I was like, let's do it. And I still think we can do it like at any age, you know? Well, I think that that's like, that's a really good attitude to have because, uh, you know, look again, I'll, I'll go back to my own example of, uh, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey and the attitude was that if you wanted to work in the entertainment field, you know, you're probably going to end up living in a box. And while I was in college, I just kind of had this thought to myself, well, if that were true, then no one would be successful, but people are successful. So why can't it be me? And so, you know, I came out here and started working and, you know, I've, I've had my share of success, which has been great. Um, and, and, you know, it was amazing for you that you were able to make that leap as well. But now with those first few years, did it just explode immediately or was it slow growth for a while? No, it's, it's, I mean, it's slow growth. I didn't know how, you know, like I'm sure with different things you've done, like I didn't, I didn't realize you pay taxes. <laughs> I didn't an important one. Well, you start a company, like, you got to think, I was like kind of playing basketball, then on drugs for many years, get sober, became a counselor. Like I heard of this thing called taxes, but like, I didn't know, I didn't know employment law. Like I didn't know, you know, no one comes in and it's like, let me help you out. And not saying they have to, it's just, they don't teach this stuff in school. You kind of need to ask a family friend. So that was the biggest the the biggest learning curve but we we pretty quickly did really well right off the bat and um and and through the years with with that center we've we've had we've been three times as big with staff and now i've scaled it back a ton why'd you Um, scale it back because i didn't so what i believe is anyone so we we work with people who have just mental health issues or they may have addiction alcohol or they may have both right and like 
I, in terms of quality of care, and I'm such a big believer that we're all unique. Like, and it's not unique in the sense that we're like, there's just, we all have our own story. We have our own childhood. We all have our own traumas. We all have our own things that we can't get over that are resentments. And I just, as we got bigger, it started to feel less manageable. And then I looked at the programs who were really expanding and I really didn't want what they had. They became like heads and beds. And I just, I, you know, and the great thing is like now insurance pays, you know, for, for treatment. And, um, and I, you know, I had sober living homes and the treatment industry is not an ethical industry. It's not like, it's not. And it's, it's a bummer. Um, but it's, it's hard to compete with pro like an example would be even today, you could call a program and who's a competing program of ours. And you could say, Hey, my son or daughter needs help. They, they, they have addiction issues. And that program will go, well, we have this beautiful house in the Hills uh, that your son or daughter could be, and they can go to our outpatient and they take outpatient monies built the highest rate and give them free housing. Well, it's not really ethical. It's not really legal. Right. But that's, that's how a majority of these programs are doing it. Do you think that ties into what you were talking about before with how easy it is, you know, especially the state of California to just, you know, get your, you know, quote unquote license out here versus, you know, what you had to do in Minnesota? Yeah, for sure. Like, like I don't, in Minnesota, there just felt, I mean, there was just a lot more integrity. Like integrity was so ingrained. It, in California, it's felt very just, And, you know, a lot of investors came in. You get a lot of people who get sober and they go, well, I want to own a sober living. I want to own an outpatient. And all of a sudden they open one up within a week and they have like six months sober. Well, yeah. And it's like, you know, how do you know that you're not going to relapse after just six months? And how do you know that you're doing like, and it happens all the time. Like, like, and it's, there's not a, there's not a standard or bar. It's, it's, um, Another weird thing is like a therapist, like if a therapist is in a, in California, uh, let's say they sleep with a client, do something horrible. Right. Uh, you, I can't report them. The client who they slept with has to report them. What? Yep. They won't lose their license. Nothing is going to happen. It has to be reported by the person. It's completely effed up. Yeah, it's like there's just so many things in this industry where I'm just like, it doesn't even logically make sense. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And that that's one of the things that, you know, I liked about, you know, everything that, you know, I read about you and that, you know, I saw in other interviews is that you you just, you know, kind of like a, this shining beacon within this industry that, you know, you're really trying to do good work and, you know, you're focused so much on the patients and the clients. And I've just got so much respect for that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm I've I've had plenty of success in my career and i'm i just think you do the next right thing the next right thing happens like you don't do the right and selfishly i don't want drama i don't want you know like like i don't want something horrible i don't want something happening bad for the client and i also don't ever like you always hear like if you don't want on the cover of new york times don't do it right right absolutely absolutely don't send an email unless you want everybody in the world to read it. 
right? <laughs> Which, gosh, I look back and I'm like, oh, somebody texted me, you know, where you're cracking a joke out of context or whatever. Oh, God. Right? Oh, totally. Totally. And it, yeah. look, I, I look back at some of the stuff I did in college. I'm like, I would be in jail now. I absolutely would. Like, this, <laughs> this would not be good. So yeah. th- th- let me ask you another question. So, you know, obviously things with cast centers going well, and then you start working with uh, celebrities. Now, was that intimidating at all? Because, you know, when you're dealing with an addict, that's a place that you've been before. But, you know, when you're with a celebrity, look, I've worked with enough of them to know that, you know, those are the folks, you know, whether it be a musician or an actor, they say it's their face on the poster. It's their picture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything that they do lives and dies by them. And that's not a position that you were in. So, you know, how do you deal with that at that point? Well, you know, I, I didn't intend on working with celebrities. Um, it kind of just happened where all of a sudden I'm in, you know, working with the Osbournes or like brought in with the Jonas Brothers for a period of time. And not all these are addiction. It's more just like problem solving. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of other, you know, clients and the reason I just give those is just to give content like I was all of a sudden brought into these different worlds you know I had so much fun with certain um groups I think it came down to more the camp like and it depend it also depended on the um what I was brought in to do so like for some people it's getting someone sober uh for someone else it may be they've felt lost in their art and like how do we get them to redefine this next part of their career and how to get back in touch with their passion and so you know i at first it was working just primarily with chaos Mm -hmm. and then after three or four years i started getting brought in more as i would say like a life coach or yeah um and and did a lot in music and um, you know, kind of brought on set when someone's refusing to show up who has a major role or been there. Um, yeah. And it's a yeah. weird, it's, it's interesting because there's, I have like a love hate relationship with it. Um, so. well, I, I feel like, um, everyone's so expendable. Um, and, what I mean by that is like, it's kind of, it's driven by relevance. It's an industry driven by relevance. Right. And, and it's what it becomes such a, um, narcissistically driven culture. Like even as my career has grown more, people are always like, is Mike happy? Is Mike happy with it? Is Mike happy with how that looks? Mm-hmm. And there's something in that, that, when you have a 18 year old bossing around 50 year olds or being rude, but they're dealing with it just because it's a job. But then if they were working in corporate America or any other job, it's not tolerated. Right. It's tolerated in that industry. It's allowed. And that's the part I don't like, but I also don't know how it would change. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the kind of like the messed up things with the industry where when you look at actors, you know, they they are, for lack of a better term, you know, when, when you're a producer, they're, they're your equity in the project, you know, they're the reason that your project gets made and sold. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, they, they don't get treated like normal folks. And, you know, that that's just has to have a, an insane effect on, you know, a person's psyche when you're dealing with that on a day in and day out basis. 
and and it's like i mean i could be look i you talked to me five years ago or 10 years ago i'd be in a different spot i think it's because i've just i've been through like i've been through so many, all over the world so many different camps and pe- like it's just um it's so much of it's a facade like it's a job it's a career and things get so enmeshed where there's this idea of love or loyalty that um it just the 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 industry feels like it um you either subscribe to it or you don't and i don't anymore mm-hmm. but i think i didn't really when i was in it i mean i ruffled a lot of feathers when i was in it i've, I've made a lot of people upset um whether it's me just saying this isn't the right fit for me or Mm-hmm. Or me telling the manager they're enabling or me telling an artist that, uh, like, they're rude. Like, Well, but, is, but isn't it, that part of it, though, where you have to be honest with folks? And, you know, look, if, if people, all they hear is what they want to hear, then no change is ever going to come. Yeah, it's just there's such a machine around them. So it really depends on who you're working with. Right. Like. Like some talent that I've worked, I love. Like we still have an amazing relationship. They're like, it's like, they can call me anytime. I wouldn't even charge them. Like, and they do, right? Like they're friends and it's evolved. And those, yeah, it's amazing, right? Like I'm so excited and it's awesome. It's just, I was brought in so much for like the chaos and that world of it. It's, there's a lot of chaos. And so I had great results in it, but at a certain point I was like, what's next? You know? Oh, I gotcha. So, and then you also, you do cast on tour and you start doing these speaking engagements. And I mean, the first time you walk into one of these arenas and you've basically sold it out 30,000 people. I mean, does that just blow your mind at that point that all of those folks are there for something that you put together? Well, I mean, those were put on music tours, so we didn't have that many. Yeah. Okay. No, those are small. Those are definitely smaller events, but they were sold out events. Um, and really it was like, I put on this like traveling mental health show that um, was before a Demi Lovato concert. Right. And so, yeah, we helped a lot of people and um, she did a really cool fan event and we called it cast on tour. And, and that's also at the Los Angeles uh, location is where Dr. Phil spoke. And yeah. that was the first time I met him. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, you know, look, the last two years, you've had, yeah. just seemed to have this explosion of success. Explosion. I, I mean, you know, obviously the cast on tour, which we just talked about, you know, you meet Dr. Phil at one of these events and then you become a regular contributor on his show and part of his advisory board. Your book gets published in 2019 and sells something like 200,000 copies almost immediately. Um, your podcast gets launched earlier this year. And I, I mean, what, like, what do you attribute to this sudden explosion? I mean, cause this is amazing. The Dr. Phil effect is big. Yeah. Like it's huge. I didn't know it. I wasn't aware <laughs> of it. I mean, it was, I mean, so many years, but number one daytime television show. And like, if you think about it, it's, there's no other show on TV that first of all, I, he kind of pioneered mental health issues on television Mm-hmm. Like in terms of like talking about even back when he was on Oprah, 
there wasn't like a lot of people talking about bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety or addiction or alcoholism, kind of like, I think he calls them the silent um, epidemic. And right. so, um, yeah. And, and so for me, it's, I got lunch with him. Uh, I actually went to lunch with him and, and uh, a manager. I thought I was introducing them to have them do business together. Cause I really didn't have like, I, I didn't even, even back when I worked with celebrities, I didn't have Instagram. Like I, I didn't see myself going public at all. Like, I mean, I, I don't even see a Twitter feed for you until like a year and a half ago or two years ago. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of like you just jumped into everything like, you know, in the yeah, last year. Like, yeah, it's been wild. Like, and then on Dr. Phil, I went on, he, I got lunch with him and he said, hey, uh, do you want to come on an episode? And then I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all right, you'll go on one in three days from now. And I was like, oh, my God. And I'm like, he's like, and uh, you need a name. He's like, coach, coach, coach Mike. And all of a sudden I became coach Mike. Uh, and branded. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, now I've been on like 40 episodes, um, you know, and, and he's, he's been like unbelievably supportive and he's, he's just like an awesome human being. Like he's, the difference with him is what you see is what you get. So the things that kind of irked me before in entertainment, Mm -hmm he's the same like he'll treat the waiter the same as he treats an executive the same way he's the same spirit there's not much different and i just it's refreshing for me because i i didn't experience that a whole lot you know like he doesn't need celebrity for his platform to be big Mm -hmm. like i can't imagine being this sounds so horrible to say but like I can't imagine being these hosts that have to talk to celebrities all day. <laughs> well, hold on. But you're, you're a podcast host and you're talking to celebrities throughout your show. I mean, like some, some, okay, like, it's not I talked to sure. Jessica Simpson because she talks about her sexual abuse, trauma. It's inspiring. Like, it's like, we're not talking about a performance in boots. You know what I mean? Right. Like we're talking about real stuff or like, with Vivica, I can talk about like mental health in the urban community or like, like it's stuff that like maybe inspires me a little bit. And I'm curious about, but to sit there on television and be interviewing these actors with their movies. And <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine because you because if you think about it, like, at least for me, right. I'm not saying that this is for me. So I'm sure a lot of people would love it. Right. Okay. It's for me, it's got to have some level of purpose. Like, like it feels good to actually go on Dr. Phil where we get them resources that normally would cost them like $50,000 for free Mm -hmm. and they get them and we're able to actually assist them with getting help. And I can still use my art of helping people. That's fabulous. It's fun. You know, like you're like, okay, cool. Like it was television yet. We actually did something for someone. Right. Yeah, so, but that, that first episode that you walk into, though, did he tell you anything beyond that you're going to be on in three days and then you just walk out there? Hardly. No, it was like, it was like all of a sudden this car's picking me up and my I'm like, I had done television once before and I was like, I'm not doing it. I was on a segment of Katie Kirk for like eight seconds. 
seconds. Okay. It was exhausting. I was like, I can't do this ever again. Like the TV is not, it was one of those situations, right? Where you're like, I didn't enjoy it. Uh-huh. And I was like, TV is not for me. Like, this is not fun. Right. And because and sometimes our brains tell us we have to love and have vision for something in order for us to want it. When really, I feel like the universe will deliver, right? Like, mm-hmm. it'll just start going, try this out. So, I, um, I, yeah, I mean, I was really nervous and I did it. And then he said, uh, that was great. And then he sent me on another episode and then, you know, it just kept happening, you know? So, so it's um, a natural progression, kind of like everything else you've been doing. It's like something yeah. worked out and it just, it builds and it builds and it builds. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, but now like you're a quasi celebrity. So are you like walking down the street and people see you try to get your autograph or anything <laughs> like that? No, I've, I say I'm Z level celebrity. Like, <laughs> like there's a demo that knows me. Um, <laughs> And they're like, if I go to Vegas, uh, the whole pit boss and the dealers, like they watch a lot. It's, it's who watches Dr. Phil. I mean, in my neighborhood, like people like, I don't know. I'm still paranoid, but like I got stopped right before coronavirus. and was like, Hey coach Mike. And it was paparazzi asked me a question. I was literally like, like, is someone out to get me? Like, like what? That's literally what went on in my head because I was like, I just can't, like, that doesn't make sense. And I also don't want, like, I I realized I started going to, I talked about in Best Off, I started going to refugee camps and that was like a huge yeah. inspiration for me. And I wanted to raise my own profile. I want to be able to do cool things to help people. Um, but I'm not like i don't i'm not a quasi i'm not a celebrity like i'm just like uh so you're not sitting at home googling yourself and like seeing you know oh it's a celebrity net worth let's see if this is accurate or not no (laughs) no well i mean i've looked at like i've looked at like the falsity of like what can be put out but like no i mean i i because i for me i want to do really cool projects like i wrote a script that's about the life coaching industry for television i want to be able to do stuff that um impacts people and is fun like i want to go to a favela in brazil and help create mental health clinics like and you can do more of that the more your star rises like you just you know i'm speaking at an event for blue cross if it still happens and then they're they call me and they're like hey and will you also interview michael phelps on stage that's the result of like me doing more in the public eye otherwise they wouldn't ask me probably no, you absolutely. Know? Absolutely. I mean, it, and it's amazing. So now um, with everything going on, you've also started the podcast, which I have to ask, are you having fun with that? I'm changing the format. So okay, with my vision for the podcast initially was in person. Okay. Right. And Clearly I the, up, can't really do that right now. No. So I've changed it. I've, I've shifted the podcast to be always evolving mm-hmm. because I, kind of as you can tell it's always like my thing um and it's going to be like 20 to 25 minutes where people are uh showcasing just how they evolve in their life so like i just did richie jackson yesterday's lady gaga's creative director for the past 13 years cool um like today i was looking up different people who do cosplay just to kind of introduce to our audience like what is cosplay because people are like oh it's just halloween it's a whole culture of it right yeah. You know, and like finding people that are, um, 
you know, that are really progressive with like finances and cooking and, and more, I'm, I'm trying to create more value-based uh, podcast, whereas before it was more casual. And then I was like, how do I make these so that they're like, almost like mini bite-sized TED talky type stuff where mm-hmm. people can listen and then go like, oh, that was really helpful. I'm going to apply that to my life, you know? That's, I mean, you're finding your voice in the podcast world. I mean, that, that's one of the things you, you start? How long have you had your podcast? Uh, this, it's about two months now. So, uh, almost as long as yours. And it was uh, something where, uh, the show that I was working on, you know, obviously Corona happened, everything went down. I said to myself, you know, I love podcasts. This is something that I've been listening to for a while. And there's a lot of, you know, folks out there who are now just doing interesting stuff because the entire world has changed. And so that's how the podcast initially started was talking to, you know, folks who I knew who had to, you know, either adjust their careers or were creating new content. And the longer that I did that, you know, the more I discovered is that, well, if it's just people that are doing new and different stuff because of this, it limits it a little bit. And so I've started expanding to people who, you know, are folks that are finding their voices or, and taking control over their own lives and have found like real success doing that. And so, you know, when, uh, you know, I first had heard about you, it was like, this is perfect. And this is somebody who is constantly evolving and constantly, you know, striving for greatness and helping other people out. Like it, it was, you know, a very easy, you know, yes, like, absolutely. I'd love to talk to you, but I've also talked to a guy who, you know, he's uh, primarily an editor and uh, a a producer, but he also is a paranormal investigator. And that's, you know, one of his passions in life or what's uh, the big lesson you've learned so far in two months, in two months, the biggest lesson I've learned is that when you are doing what you love, you are the happiest. And if somebody can pay you for that, uh, you will rarely be happier in life. I mean, obviously, you know, family health are very important, but you know, if what you find to be fun is the way that you earn a living and you know, it, it, look, it's How a, do you, a, let me ask you a question. So yeah, you do the, and I, if you're in a podcast and you're like, like, uh Oh, like this is not the, the chemistry is not there. We're not jiving. Like, like, have you had moments in your podcast where you're like, Oh God, I had, I, I've only had one moment like that. And it was, um, I was talking with a friend of mine who, uh, she, she, she's got a cool story. She started off working in, you know, finance and business. And then, you know, her, the joke was that she escaped basically every major financial disaster. So she worked at Lehman brothers and then left there in 2006 before they collapsed, moved to France because she wanted to live in Europe, worked in finance there, and then left in the beginning of 2008 before the finance business collapsed, moved to Brazil and, uh, you know, then started an import export company and then eventually, you know, moved to Miami, you know, helped run a company there before leaving finance totally and uh, going to live in Utah with her husband and her kids so they could snowboard and hike and, you know, bike ride and she could focus on, you know, just smaller businesses herself that she runs like, you know, she makes artisanal soap right now and she's running a travel company. But at one point during that interview, you know, she said that she worked in complex financial products. And I, I just said, okay, well, you know, complex financial products. Look, I'm not a finance person. Can you explain this to me? And she did. And literally the podcast ground to an absolute halt uh, during the explanation. And it was one of those, it's one of the few times where I've ever taken, you know, a piece of the podcast out and truly edited. I mean, usually I go, there's like some dead air or something while somebody thinks of something. I'll remove that as well just to keep things flowing. But what yeah. I found though is that when you're talking to somebody about their life and 
all of the things that they've experienced, it's very hard not to have some sort of rapport and some sort of interest because, you know, we can go into the absolute technicalities of what it means to, you know, run a rehab center and to work with patients. But, you know, to me, and I think to the viewers as well, the most interesting thing is, you know, you as a person, how does that affect you? How do you look at that internally through your life? And when we have those discussions, I find it's very hard to, you know, find those moments of dead air. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's uh definitely, were you doing yours in person at all yet? Or are you going to keep it all online? I'm going to keep it all online for right now. I mean, look, depending on how this develops and depending on, you know, what becomes safe or not safe at a certain point, these absolutely may become in person. Um, you know, for right now, at least through, you know, video zooming and recording that I can see the person across from me and be able to look into their eyes. And that that's the most important thing. You know, once you start getting in person, it's like, okay, now I'll actually have to start and build, you know, some sort of studio to make that work. Yeah. But for right now, it was just one of those ones of, look, you know, I think I know how to talk to people and, you know, I'm yeah. a generally curious person. So let me just talk to interesting people and see where that goes from there. Well, I got to say you're, you're a good interviewer. Thank you. It's e you're easy to talk to. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you having me. You know? oh, no, absolutely. I mean, look, it, it's it's been wonderful having you. And so, look, you know, Mike, I'll just say, you no, know, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I mean, really, I said it before. I'll say it again. It, it really thank truly was. It, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, anyway, if you're interested to learn more about Mike, please check out his website, CoachMikeBayer.com. Again, that's CoachMikeBayer.com. B a y e r is how you spell his last name. Please check out and buy his book. Best Self, Be You, Only Better. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books. And most importantly, tune into his podcast, the Coach Mike Podcast. He already mentioned that he's interviewed Jessica Simpson and Vivica A. Fox, but he's also had folks like Dr. Phil and Kathy Ireland on there. It's available through iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, basically all major podcast platforms. So, Mike, again, thank you. I really had a great time chatting. Thank you, you. Rami. Uh, it was a pleasure, dude. Uh, thank all you all right. for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, have a question or a comment, I'd love to hear from you. So please email me at info at the top Again, that's info at the top Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the latest episode. Leave a review. I love getting those. Thanks again, everyone. Stay safe and healthy out there. Bye.